If you want to take out your Bible and open to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to start there and then we'll go back to Genesis and then we're going to thread our way uh, through the Old Testament and back into the New. So this is one of those days to lick your finger and get ready for turning some pages, elbow the person next to you and say, it's on, a little contest here. Let's see who's faster finding books of the Bible. Um, Just the competitive spirit in me. I've recently started reading a new book, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Do we have any any fans of Les Mis? Okay. I have never read this before. It's one of those books that has scared me. It's 1,200 pages long. It's not even fun to carry, you know. It's like walking around with a brick. And I'm kind of amazed how often I get stopped by people and they say, what in the world is it that you're reading? Are you reading the dictionary or, you know, what is this thing? So I'm getting a lot of conversations with this. Um, so yeah, it's been always, it's been annoying or intimidating for me, but um, I'm actually enjoying it immensely. And uh, in particular, I'm enjoying this description of Bishop Digny in the first 100 pages, this really beautiful character, also known as the Bishop Muriel or Bishop Bienvenu, and just the grace and the mercy that he has in his life and his heart and compassion for those who are lost, who do not yet know the gospel, and his, his drive to go out to them and to make sure that they would hear the gospel. It's been really sweet. But last week I was reading, and I came across something that actually made me think of our series, Jesus, the True and Better. And it was a bit of what we call foreshadowing. Remember this from high school or college lit class, right? Foreshadowing. So I'll give you the backdrop, and then I'm going to read you a little excerpt. The backdrop is this. There's an old fella in town known as Father Fauchelevent. How's that for pronunciation? I've been practicing all week long. I don't even know if it's right, but I thought that's how I would say it, and with confidence, and people would believe me. So Father Fauchelevent. And his business is failing. And this has made him jealous and critical of the new-to-town Monsieur Madeleine, whom The readers know as Jean Valjean, the ex-convict, right? Father Fauchelevent has an accident. His horse-drawn carriage is going through town in the mud. He falls off. He gets run over. The load collapses on him, and he is being crushed to death. A crowd comes around and are seeing this this, uh, happening, and they cannot lift the cart off of him. Some men rush off to retrieve a jack so they can lift this thing off. But in the meantime, we find um, Jean Valjean, who is witnessing this. And Jean Valjean, when he was in prison, developed incredible strength because of all of the hard labor that he had been pressed to do. And he sees what is happening. And though his true identity isn't known to the townspeople, he dives under the cart. He lifts it off of the man. And he saves Father Fauchelevent's life. That's the backdrop. And from that, I want to read you this excerpt. Are you ready? Fauchelevent had thrown his kneecap out of joint in his fall. Father Madeleine, who is Jean Valjean, he's going to be referred to as Father Madeleine here. Father Madeleine had carried him to an infirmary that he had set up for his workers in the same building as his factory, and that was serviced by two sisters of charity. The following morning, the old man found a thousand-franc note on the night table by his bed, with these words written in Father Madeleine's hand, I'm buying your horse and cart. The cart was smashed, 
and the horse was dead. Fauchelevent recovered, but his knee remained stiff. Monsieur Madeleine, uh, through the recommendation of the sisters and his priest, found the old codger, I'm going to be using that name or that phrase as often as I can this week, I like that, the old codger, found the old codger a job as a gardener in a convent in the Saint Antoine quarter of Paris. So you've heard me read this now and you're thinking, that was wonderful, thank you so much. i thrilled that I now know that. I read that because as, as, as you're reading along in this novel, you suddenly get this paragraph and as a reader you can't help but to think, what's going on here? Why are we given all of this information? This is quite a lot of detail about a seemingly insignificant figure, even a fairly insignificant event in the overall story. On one hand, this event sort of has echoes back to sort of the grace that Jean Jean Valjean had received from Father Dignay in the beginning. But overall, you can't help but to wonder, why are we being told this? There's a lot of detail about where this rescued man is being sent. The city, Paris, the region, the Saint Antoine region, his job, a gardener, the employer, a convent. Why are we being given all of this detail about this outgoing character? It's all a little too specific. And so the reader becomes suspicious. It almost seems like the author has a future purpose for this character, as though it's being planted and rooted here now, something that will be retrieved later. And in fact, that's the case. And friends, I want to cultivate this kind of curiosity in you as you read the left side of your Bible. And we've, we've been calling the Old Testament the left side for a while here to kind of phrase it a little differently. And our Bible, of course, is much, much more than literature, right? Much more than literature. But it does contain literary elements. The left side of our Bible anticipates. It points to It foreshadows, and it outright promises Christ and his ministry for mankind. And so God, the supreme author, not just of the book, but of the real redemption story, has intentionally planted figures and features, institutions and types that ultimately prepare us for Jesus. They have a way of cultivating in God's people a construct a mental framework, a sense of need, uh, even a glimpse of precedent, so that when Messiah arrived, God's people would recognize him and also know their need for him, that he is the one that they truly needed and had been waiting for. And so today's figure that we're looking at, which really contributes to this sort of this mental construct uh, through typology or through foreshadowing here, is the figure Abraham. It was very tempting this morning to approach Pastor Ethan and say, would you lead us in a rousing rendition of Father Abraham, right? <laughs> With motions and all, because I'd really like to see some of you do it, <laughs> just for my amusement. Maybe next time. Uh, a little bit of a caveat, too. As we look, at, uh, we look into the Old Testament and we look at typology, we're going to find that some types are stronger and clearer and more overt than others, Okay. Um, next week, for example, we're going to look at Isaac. You want to look at a clear type 
that points to Christ. It's Isaac. Can't miss it. Uh, and today, Abraham uh, and his story with God is not quite as obvious or quite as strong as some of these other types that we might see. And we do want to be careful. So this is just a bit of a caveat here. We do want to be careful not to read our Old Testament uh, is like a version, you know, like a where's Jesus version of where's Waldo, where we're constantly tucking him into places where he may not be, right? We want to make sure we're understanding the author's intent. But I think the New Testament helps us to see that this, that Abraham is a type, in fact, and I'll draw that out for us. There are a couple of New Testament passages that I think are kind of helpful in guiding us in this, this, this kind of a, of a message or this kind of a glance into the Old Testament. Acts 7 is one of them. This is where Stephen is being stoned, and he kind of gives us the whole narrative uh, of the Scripture. And then Hebrews 11 is also one of those, where we see some of these Old Testament figures and how they prepare us for Christ. So today's passage is taken from Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 10. That's our principal passage. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. i got to stop real quick here. Uh, actually, Ethan... I left, uh, I left the clicker back there. I'm going to need that shortly. Could you run that up to me? Sorry. You know, a guy without his remote is just lost. I'm going to have that. Thank you. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So first of all, what we see here is in obedience. In obedience, Abraham left the place he knew as home. Now, this statement probably doesn't hit us with much force or much significance. We read it and we go, big deal, so what? We live in a very mobile and transient culture, right? Uh, we'll even do this by show of hands here this morning for a little participation. How many of you were born in and have lived in Fairbanks your entire life? Let's see some hands. Maybe, maybe 20? Maybe 20. Maybe 18. Okay. How many of you have lived in Fairbanks for less than five years? Okay, more. First service was much more helpful making this point than you all have been, (laughs) just so you know. We'll dub that in in the video here. So, uh, in any case, we we move a lot, especially you who are military. You you get to town. It takes a month, six weeks, a couple months to find a home church. You get going, and before you decide, yeah, this is going to be it. This is where we're going to land. We're settled here. And by the time the pastor me knows your name enough to use it confidently uh, and to call you by your name, you have orders to go to the next place. That's how it sets up in my life. Um, So this may not sound like a big deal here as we read this, but in the ancient world, for someone to leave a region they knew as home that supported their life and their multi-generational family to go to an unknown area was a huge risk. It was a life or death decision. We don't tend to think about it that way. Um, Maybe I'll appeal to those of you who like to hunt and fish and berry pick. We probably have a few of those in here this morning. Think about how loyal you become to your particular region. How uh, sort of defensive you can, you can be of it. You don't go to other areas. You keep going to the same area. Um, I, you maybe have heard I like to fly fish. That's 
little secret that's gotten out. And um, I, there are some particular streams that I like to fish. And one day I was passing one and I looked at it and I thought, you know, that one looks really good. Um, I really want to check that out. And one time when I was driving by, there was a guy getting out of his truck, putting on some waders. And I thought, oh, I'm going to stop and chat with him and see uh, what I might learn. So I pulled over and got out and said, hey, I see that you're fishing this stream. I've always wondered about it. It looked really fishy. Uh, you know, can you tell me anything about it? And he says, oh, man, this, this stream is terrible. It's just terrible. And there's bears everywhere. He's putting on his gun. There's bears everywhere. I don't even know why I come here. There, you know, there's a lot of other streams south of here. I'd probably hit one of those. <laughs> I'm coming back to this place. I'm coming back here. This place is hot, right? I know it. So we become kind of even territorial. You know, we, we know when we fish this particular stream, you know, that, oh, this is where the fish like to hold up. This is where the snags are. This is where a good drift is. We become sort of familiar with it and, and, it, and we're just comfortable with it. Or hunting, same thing. Maybe you have a particular valley and you know your valley. You know it. You know where those little wallows are. You know where the fresh water is. You know where the moose are going to bed down. You know that that particular cluster of trees over there looks like a moose. It's not a moose. Those branches coming off to the side look like horns, but they're not horns. You know that rock up on the hill that looks like a bear is not a bear. It's a rock because you've already made a stalk on it once only to find a rock and not a bear. You know. You know. Or berry pickers, okay? It's one of those things you, you, know, you find out someone's going berry picking. Oh, where do you go berry picking? North. <laughs> you, know, you, find a, you find a nice slope, and it gets plenty of water, and it gets good sun, and the berries come out, and they're really big, and you're not telling anybody where your berry patch is. And the other nice thing about it is it's a slope, which means you only have to bend over about that far, right? These little things become big things as you go on. And so we become sort of committed and loyal to these areas because they've produced for us. They've supported us. And if you think about it, as committed as we become to these areas of fishing and hunting and berry picking, think how much more loyal and committed you'd be to a region that was a matter of survival. You, you don't leave it lightly. Especially if it's a matter of fertile land, adequate food, fresh water. You're tied to this. And so we see here, I mean, you might leave it for famine. You might leave it for drought. We, we see Jacob doing this, taking his family into Egypt where God is providentially prepared uh, for them with Joseph being there. Um, but you don't leave this area lightly. The sole reason for Abraham's departure is simply God called him to do it. That's it. And so in, in Genesis 12, if you want to turn there, we'll look at this call. Genesis 12.1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram's departure from home, from his people, from his father's household, all of this pure and simple is an act of obedience. Secondly here, Abram enters into a foreign land and he does so because he is on errands from God. So understand, God's not restless. 
He's not bored. This isn't just an arbitrary assignment. He's not just looking at earth going, I can't think of anything else to do. Abraham's a pawn. I think I'll move him around and see what happens. God's plan has always been to build a people for himself. And here he initiates it with Abraham and his family. And I think it's interesting, even as he does this, Abraham is, or God is, is sure to provide for Abraham plenty of obstacles along the way. Even with this great promise that he's given him, he still accompanies it with infertility, hostile nations, annoying family members. Even Abraham's very fearful character, his own fearful character, which causes him in some instances to do really foolish things, particularly to his wife Sarai. And then secondly, sometimes to take matters into his hands, which he shouldn't. Both are animated by fear. And I believe that God intentionally uses such flawed characters as Abraham so that we would look back and we would not say, how great is Abraham, but rather, how great is our God? How great is our God? I've said it before that I think when God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's not name dropping. He's not flexing when he says that. He is not taking from these figures any credit or status for himself. These guys, actually, when you look at their lives, are kind of scoundrels. They do a mix of good things and bad things, but some of their bad things, you think, these are the patriarchs? So when he says that I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I think we are meant to see that God's greatness is visible in his use of the ordinary, not in the extraordinary. Abraham and his family would have to walk by faith in God, learning to trust God for his plan in spite of circumstances which looked very contrary to its fulfillment. And so Abraham enters this promised land in obedience and on errand for God. And then we see that he will become the head of a chosen people. So if you look at Genesis 15, just a couple pages over, he would become the head of a chosen people. And interestingly, this was something that Abraham knew and yet something that he questioned. And so in Genesis 15, 1 through 7 here, we almost see what we could call a crisis of faith for Abraham. Genesis 15, 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. I, I don't know. How, God is a very patient God, yeah? I don't know how at times he doesn't just go, What? What's that? Abraham? Psh, okay, we're done with you, right? You, you did this. Then the word of the Lord came to him This man will not be your heir but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So it's true you know this, God calls us to hard things. He calls us to hard seasons. He calls us to hard acts of obedience. 
and he calls us to all kinds of things which will demand faith and dependence upon him. And here we see that he is actually quite gracious to Abraham to not just call him to something hard, but to give him a sign, a visual, and a kind of assurance for what he has been called to. He says, let's go outside and look up. And when you see the sky and the number of stars here, so shall your descendants be. That's really an amazing thing. Um, Again, I think this might fail to impress us a little bit up here in Alaska because, frankly, we actually have terrible star-viewing skies here, right? In the summertime, not going to happen. In the wintertime, it's too cold. We're sitting by the wood stove. Or if you do go out, uh, you know, you might get a good glimpse of the aurora, but the stars not so much because we've got snow everywhere, and you tend to get the light pollution off of the snow, if you can call light pollution. That's still hard for me to do. But I grew up in the high desert of Southern California, Apple Valley. It's about 2,300 feet in elevation, and if you get just a little bit outside of town on a dark night with no moon, the visual of the stars is astounding. So I brought you a picture. This is from Joshua Tree National Park, which is near my home where I grew up. These are the skies that I grew up looking at. The stars, the sky seems to have dimension to it. Uh, it's just incredible. And you get to see things like the Milky Way like this, not just faintly, but really strikingly. And I submit to you that when Abraham was taken outside to look at the stars in the desert region that he was in, this is more like what he saw. Also think about this. This sign from God to Abraham here isn't just big talk. Abraham probably, I mean, maybe he can see a million stars, a million But consider the millions of Jews, generation after generation, that are in fact his descendants. And consider the millions and millions of Gentiles subsequent to that, who by God's grace have been grafted in to this family. God did not exaggerate or overstate or embellish. He has kept his promise maybe even bigger than it seemed with this visual. How great is our God. Abram would then also live as a sojourner. Uh, We're told that he lived in tents. He didn't grip tightly to the things of this world. And I would tell you, that would be very difficult for me. I am a person who puts down roots wherever I am. I lived 15 years in the high desert. Uh, I went for four years to uh, Biola University, my alma mater. I'm still attached to that place. My son goes there now, who's actually home today, which is fun for us for the summer. Um, We've lived here 20 years. I feel a security because we have a home here. I feel security because I have a regular job here. Thank you for that. Uh, I feel secure because we have steady friends here. I feel secure here because there's a good fishing stream here that I like. Right? These, are, these are things that help me feel anchored, but Abraham lived in tents. Intense. Traveling light, trusting God, living for a future city whose architect and builder was God. Uh, The word that Hebrews 11 uses of him, a stranger in a foreign land, uh, the Greek there is alotrios, and it means belonging to another, like an alien, uh, not from outer space, but from a foreign territory. Uh, I can't help but when I see that word to think of my trips to Ethiopia and walking through the marketplace and everybody there 
looks at my skin and says, I think he's from somewhere else, right? <laughs> and they yell out, Fringe, Fringe, which means foreigner. And this is how Abraham lived. He lived in exile, so to speak. He looked forward to a city built by God. Uh, again, this exile living meant that he lived lightly here. His citizenship in his mind was truly elsewhere. He lived lightly here, but longed greatly for the city of God. So here's the key transition. In these ways, Abraham serves as a type pointing to Christ. One who points to, prefigures, foreshadows, and anticipates the person in the ministry of Jesus so that when Jesus arrives, when Messiah arrives, we would recognize him as one that we have been prepared for. And this isn't just my conjecture. The Apostle Paul sees this, and he calls this out explicitly in Galatians. Uh, you can turn there if you want. It's just a short passage, though. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 says this. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Isn't that amazing? If I were to ask you, where do you find the gospel in the scriptures? I dare say most of, our, most of us, our first instinct would be to say, in the New Testament. But the gospel, says Paul, was announced to Abraham in the Old. He announced the gospel in advance to Abraham all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what is initiated in Abraham is made full and complete in Christ. Jesus is a true and better Abraham. How, you might ask? Well, we're going to pick up the pace and I'll show you. In obedience, Jesus left his heavenly home. He left the abode of heaven. 1 John 4, 9 says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now understand this. Jesus is the eternal son of God. And as such, he possesses equality with God. He is of equal deity and co-substantial with the Father. And yet, as the Son, he submits himself to the Father's will. And I can't help but in my imagination to kind of wonder what this conversation went like in heaven. So I'm going to take a little liberty here and play out this for you, how at least it works in my mind. So welcome to my mind for just a moment here. Hey, Jesus. Yeah, Pops. <laughs> I need you to run an errand for me. Sure thing. I need you to go to Earth. Really? That godforsaken place. <laughs> yeah. I'm planning to renovate. Whoa, that's going to take a lot of work. True. How in the world are you going to do that? 
Funny you should ask. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm overplaying this. I'm exaggerating this little drama here. I'm particularly exaggerating what, maybe have, uh, what might have been unknown to the son. But the scriptures make it explicit. The father sent the son. The father sent the son. The son accepted the assignment. And Jesus in the garden battles his own will to bring it in submission to the father's will. Right? The eternal son left the abode of heaven, or what Michael Reeves calls in his great book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, he calls it the happy land of the Trinity. (laughs) The eternal son left the abode of heaven. He maintained his full deity, but added to it humanity. And while he is fully divine, maintaining this constantly as the God-man, he set aside the independent use of his divine prerogatives. He doesn't set aside his deity. He sets aside the ability to use it independently, or not the ability, but the, the act of using it independently, so that his will is always in submission to the Father. In other words, it looks like this. When the devil tempts a very hungry Jesus after 40 days of fasting and says, hey, turn those rocks into bread. The reality is Jesus could have done it, but he chose not to and submitted himself to the mission of God. Or under arrest when Herod, who was really itching to see Jesus and these miracles or party tricks and says, Jesus, show me one of your miracles. Jesus could have done it. But he doesn't, and he submits himself to this ongoing process in submission to the will of God and the mission of God. Or when the crowds and the soldiers mock him, and he's on the cross, and they say, look at this guy, he saved others, he can't even save himself. Come on down from there, big guy. He could have done it. But instead, he submits himself to the Father's mission. When he was arrested in the garden, and Peter draws the sword to defend him, albeit a bad aim... Jesus makes this divine, this, this setting aside of divine prerogatives explicit. He says this, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So in obedience, Jesus left the abode of heaven and he entered a foreign land on errand for God. Now, foreign's a bit of a stretch here, right? After all, Jesus helped make this place. But his dwelling place was with the Father. And then we see that Jesus would become the head of a chosen people. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He was to be the head of a chosen people. And then he lived as a sojourner, a temporary uh, dweller. This is really interesting in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, if you want to turn there. John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that Jesus dwelt among us. And that's actually an unusual word. John could have said it much simpler. He could have just said, Jesus lived among us. But he chose this unusual Greek word here, eskenosin which some people have translated as far as saying he tabernacled among us. Or in very modern language, it would be he camped with us. He camped out with us. He caravaned with us. 
It, it really highlights this temporary and sort of um, itinerant nature, so to speak. And it's a very unusual phrase. And really what's in view here in context, John is sort of hearkening back to the way that God tabernacled, camped with, traveled with in an itinerant way, Israel when Moses led them. So there is this hearkening back to Moses, but it also corresponds to Abraham too in the same way that he lived in tents. He lived as a sojourner in a land, as an exile for a time. And that is the same way that Jesus lived on earth. I I can't help but to think again of the passage in Luke 24 when the two disciples are walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And it says that in beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures, left side, about himself. And I believe that is why their hearts were burning within them when they realized all of these stories that we have known have been preparing us to see this one who is with us now. And so in the fifth point, we see this. Jesus did all of this for the purpose of building the city of God. In fact, there's an aspect here in which it's not just that the Father is building it, but Jesus departs to go and participate in that. In John 14, 1, before he leaves, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would not have told you uh, that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And so all in all, what we see here is this. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. He left a place that he knew as home to go to a foreign place on errand for God, to become the head of a chosen people with whom he would sojourn for a time for the purpose of building the city of God and bringing to it the people of God. Jesus is a true and better Abraham. I want to just close with one last thing here, and it is this. Why don't you use your imagination? I want you to imagine the cross and the death of Christ without any of the Old Testament. Let's just pretend. Let's pretend for a moment. We don't have Old Testament. All we have is new. That's all we've got. A guy shows up from Nazareth, of all places, emerges on the scene and says, got a lot of problems with you people. Don't worry about it. I'm going to die. I'm going to let these people execute me. It's all going to be good. They'd be like, that guy's crazy. Let's not hang out with him at all. You see, this is what we have in the Old Testament. These figures, these features, these institutions, these types, which all point to Jesus so we would know him and recognize him when he comes. Without this progressive revelation of God, We would not know that God made us for himself. We would not know his nature and character. We would not know the problem of our sin, how it entered the world and how it separates us from God. We would not know how to atone for sin. We would not know that even earthly sacrifices are insignificant and ultimately we need an eternal and infinite sacrifice of one who is worthy. We would not know our inability to rescue ourselves. We would not know the essential nature of Jesus such that he and he alone can save us from our sins. Without the incremental revelation of God, the cross would be absolutely absurd. And yet it's not. 
because God has written a full story. Without the left side of our Bible, the types and the way they point to and prefigure and prototype and foreshadow and promise a Savior, we wouldn't even know we needed one and we would not have recognized the one who came. So I would say in closing, praise God. Praise God that he is not just a great storyteller, but as the author of a real redemption story, by his grace, he has written us into it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. You have been so good to us, so kind to us. We do not worship this book, but as we read it and we know more of our God, we cannot help but to worship our God, for you have been so good, making us for yourself And seeing that we rebelled and ran away from you, you made a way by which we would be reconciled to you. And you told us incrementally over time and over millennium your plan in the cross such that we can see Jesus and look back and see you've been preparing us for him all along. Thank you, God, that by your grace you've provided a savior. His name is Jesus. We're thankful for him and we pray in his name. Amen.